Okay, before we get into our text, our new text for this morning, I want to clarify something that we talked about last week um, that I fear I may not have made clear or possibly I may have over-clarified and said something that wasn't what I intended. In our discussion of verse 3 of Romans chapter 6, Paul brings up the concept of baptism. And I tried to make it clear that he's referring there to the baptism of the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit comes upon us at the moment of our justification, when we believe, and he identifies us with Christ. And we looked at 1 Corinthians 12, and we looked at Colossians chapter 2, passages that deal with that same thing. A good portion of our discussion last time was spent talking about that identification that we have with Christ. In a spiritual sense, that means that his death burial and resurrection are also our death, burial, and resurrection. And we'll see more of that in our discussion today as well. But what I want to make clear, and I'm not saying that that was wrong, but what I want to make clear is that while Paul in this section is not referring to water baptism, and while it is also true that water baptism plays no part in our justification and it is not essential for our salvation, I did not mean to imply that water baptism isn't isn't important or that it's something that you shouldn't do as a believer. Jesus did command that we should go out and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Once you have believed, once you have become saved, it is important to then go ahead and take that next step and be baptized with water baptism. As a believer, baptism is an important step in declaring your faith and showing others that identification that you have with Christ. I mentioned last time that water baptism is a picture of what happens with the Holy Spirit at the moment of our salvation. The Holy Spirit identifies us with Christ in a spiritual sense. That's why we call it spirit baptism. And that is what spirit baptism is, and that's what Paul is talking about here in Romans chapter 6. Water baptism identifies us with Christ in a public or a declarative sense. We declare, we're making it clear that we are now identified with Christ. So it doesn't add anything to our salvation, and it doesn't complete our salvation in any way, but it is an act of obedience in declaring our faith. So I just wanted to clarify that, and the reason was because a question came up afterwards last week, and then, as I mentioned it to Jenny, she said, oh yeah, you kind of made it sound like you shouldn't get water baptized. Well, that was not my intention to say that, um, or to, to imply that. I just want to make clear that what Paul is referring to here in Romans chapter 6, and to clarify that baptism does not play a part in saving a person, I may have let that get lost in the shuffle there. So I just want to make sure that we're clear on that, and I apologize if that caused anyone else any confusion on that subject. But now, we're ready to continue on with what Paul has to say here in Romans chapter 6 in our discussion on sanctification. The letter so far has progressed um, in this gospel presentation that Paul is bringing us from the opening chapters, uh, from verse 18 of chapter 1 through verse 20 of chapter 3, where Paul has talked about man's condemnation as he rejects God. Mankind has no righteousness of his own. He is totally lost in his sins. He is under the power of sin, and he rejects God at every turn. 
Jew and Gentile alike have rejected and find themselves under the impartial judgment of the Almighty God, anticipating the day when they will stand before Him in judgment. That is a picture of the pool of humanity, the picture that defines every single person on earth and the condition in which they find themselves with regard to God. Sinners at enmity, totally lost. But then in chapter 3, Paul presented the picture of hope. Hope that comes by way of the plan of God as he has graciously provided the means for redemption. A means for lost mankind to be able to be reconciled to God, turn from his sin, and stand before God holy and blameless and credited with God's own righteousness. That is the message of justification that Paul starts in verse 21 of chapter 3, the message that, that God provides in the work of his son, Jesus Christ, coming to earth as the propitiation for sins to provide mankind with a means for his sins to be covered and be rescued out from under the penalty that his sins have incurred. Mankind is guilty. Jesus Christ is not. Yet he came to earth, fully man, fully God, and shed his own blood on the cross, dying for our sins when he didn't have to. He was under absolutely no obligation to provide this for us. Yet he did it. And the Bible says that he loved us to the point of dying for our sins. And we saw in that section from 321 through the end of chapter 5 that Jesus Christ paid that penalty that the love of God has been poured out into the hearts, uh, into our hearts as those who have believed through the Holy Spirit, and that all we must do to receive all that He did for us and what He did on our behalf is believe in Him, in His work that He accomplished. We are justified by faith in His atoning work. Now, here we are in chapter 6. And in chapter 6, we started the third major section of the letter. We had condemnation, then we had justification, and now we start the third major section here that has to do with sanctification, the what now portion of our salvation process. Now that we have been justified, we are set apart. In the, condemn in the condemnation phase, a person stands condemned, totally unrighteous. In the justification phase, a person believes in God's work through his son on the cross and the righteousness of God is credited to him. Paying for those sins that they committed, removing them from their account and wiping that slate clean. At that moment, that person becomes saved. But that doesn't mean that the process stops. And it doesn't mean that there isn't any more for them to do after they are saved. Now, by saying that, don't misunderstand. I'm not talking about anything that we knew need to do to be saved more or anything more that we need to do to be justified. Justification is one and done. God declares us to be righteous and we now stand as righteous before him. Nothing or no one can ever change that, not us, not God, nothing. We are justified for all eternity. But when the, where the continuation comes in that I'm talking about is with this new life that we now find ourselves in. Now that we have believed and we have been taken from that animosity with God, taken from that life of rejecting God, submitting ourselves to the devil and the power of this world, the life that we were in before, 
submitting ourselves to our own sins and lustful hearts, what are we now to do since those things no longer define us? How should we live now that the life that we had previously, living as children of, children of wrath, is no longer true of us? Are we to live just the same way as we did before? Does it make sense that God would save us from those deeds, from that life, and just expect us to continue doing the same things that we did previously? The things that got us into our predicament in the first place. It's that type of question that Paul is asking here in Romans chapter 6. Does that make any sense at all? At the end of chapter 5, Paul had just finished talking about sin and how sin and death had come into the world by way of Adam, but righteousness and life had come into the world through Christ. Then he said in the last two verses of chapter 5, the law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So sin was overcome by grace in that, in that the fix that Christ provided through his work on the cross overcame the problem that came into the world through Adam that brought condemnation to us all. So with an increase in sin, you had an increase in grace, which then prompted the question that began our chapter, verse 1, chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? And this question would, and answer that Paul presents here is very clear. The answer is no. Absolutely not. Those who have been justified by faith in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross shall absolutely not continue in a life of sin. That statement there really defines the argument that will carry through the rest of this chapter. As a believer in Jesus Christ, we do not live lives of sin. A believer in Jesus Christ does not live like the world, does not carry on the way that he or she did prior to when they were saved. And he then proceeded to explain why, which is where we are today. He said there in verse 2 that we died to sin. And then he talked, he went on to talk about that in detail, which is what we looked at last week in the first seven verses of the chapter. Now let me just read that section that we looked at last week and it'll carry on into what we're going to talk about today. The end of verse 2, How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. That's what got us into our baptism discussion. 
uh, from last time. Baptism is immersion. Baptism is identification, whether that's water baptism or spiritual baptism. At its core, that's what baptism is. So as Paul is talking about here with the baptism of the Holy Spirit, we are identified, we are immersed with Christ in that spiritual sense. Having believed, having trusted in him for our salvation, we are now identified with him in the work that he accomplished on our behalf. Which is why throughout these verses, Paul is reminding them of this truth. It's a truth that they already should know. He says, do you not know? And this isn't new information. Those who have been justified, we have died with him. We have been buried with him. We have been raised to new life with him. All of these things are true. And as a result of these things, we are now set apart, sanctified from what we were before. That's sanctification, right? We've been set apart from that. We have now died to sin. The old man, the man that we were under Adam and his condemnation and influence has been crucified with Christ. Now, that's the reality of it. That's the truth that Paul presents here in our situation with Jesus Christ. But what does that mean from a practical standpoint? What does that mean for the way that we are to live? That's what we're going to see as we continue on here uh, throughout the chapter. Now, as we come to verse 8, we pick up with where we left off in our previous section, right? We are free from sin. We are freed from its penalty in our justification. We are even free from the power of sin, and we'll see that even more today. We are no longer slaves to it, but sin is still around. And as believers, we do fall into sin from time to time. But Paul, what Paul is getting across here is that sin no longer defines us, and it no longer has power over us. When a believer sins, it is never because they have to sin. It is never because they have no choice to sin. For the one who has been freed from sin, that is never true for us, and we'll see that as we continue on here. Now he goes on in verse 8, continuing with what he's just been saying. He says, now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. And that if, you see these ifs every once in a while, that if at the beginning of the verse is really, there's no question in this, this is since. Since we have died with Christ, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have died with Christ. Since we have died with Christ, that's what he's talking about here. As those who have died with Christ, we know that death is not the end. There is life on the other side of death. We know that. This was one of the things that Paul mentioned at the end of chapter 5. If you look back at verse 17 of chapter 5, he said, Therefore, if by the transgression of the one death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. And then again, down in verse 21, he said, So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Anyone who has believed in the Son, accepted the truth of the gospel that he has brought to us, has become identified with him, now has what? Eternal life. 
Now, ultimately, when we think of eternal life, we think of the future aspect of it, right? I don't know about you, but when I think of eternal life, I think, oh, that's down the road. That's, that's what we will have someday. But the, and that's true. We will, if you think of the future aspect of it. But that life starts now. Eternal life starts at the moment that we are saved and continues on for all eternity. Now, unfortunately, unless the Lord comes first, we will still physically die. But even then, for the believer, being absent from the body just means that we will be forever in the presence of the Lord. And it's that life, that new life, that new creature that we've been made that starts now that we're talking about here. He says, we shall also live with him. We are now living with regard to the death that we died with Christ. This is what he's been emphasizing in the previous seven verses, particularly in verses 3 and 5. We died with Christ. We are raised with Christ. Paul is reiterating it here. We died with him, and now we live with him as well. Now, you note that Paul says here that we believe this. We believe that we shall also live with him. And this is important to note. Because what Paul is doing here is presenting things that we know to be true. Believers believe this. We know this. The part, this part of the information that we understand as children of God. This is part of what we know. As we contemplate a section where we're to understand how we are to live, the first thing that we need to understand is what is true of us. Because that directly impacts our life. Knowing who we are, knowing what is true of us, affects the way that we live, doesn't it? For example, I know that I cannot fly. I know that about myself, right? I'm not a bird. I'm a human being. I have no wings. I have no ability to fly. What does that mean? I know that. That's something I have fixed in my head. What does that mean about me? It means that I don't jump off the roof of my house. I don't even like going on the roof. I've never been on the roof of my house because I can't fly. But I look out my window, right? I have a window in my office. I look outside. I see birds land on my roof. They have no fear. What do they do? They jump up in the air and they fly away. But I can't do that. And I don't even try to do that because that's something that I know about myself, right? I can't fly, so I don't even attempt that. That knowledge dictates how I behave, how I act. Well, here, Paul says that this is what we believe. We know and understand this knowledge to be true. We are people who have died with Christ. And we know that our life now is with him. Identified with him in the way that we are to live. That will play a key role in some of the verses that we see coming up here. Now, in the next verses, we get more of this same picture by seeing what happened with Christ and showing how that affects us, how that is intertwined with our new life in him. Verse 9 starts off knowing that. And you see here again, he's presenting something that we know. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. Now, we know that Christ died. That's a settled fact, right? If we're believers in Jesus Christ, we know that Christ died, right? I mean, if, if, you're, if you say you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you don't know that Christ died, then we, we need to talk because we know that Christ died. What else do we know about him? 
Anyone who has put their faith and trust in Christ for their salvation believes that Christ was crucified, believes that he was buried, believes that he rose again and is alive today, right? These are essential parts of the gospel. These are all things that if we are saved, if we have believed the gospel, these are all things that we've believed and we know. And what is Paul doing? He's tying this all into us as well. Jesus died and was buried and rose again. We died and were buried and rose again with him. What Paul is stating here is important to understand as the foundation for how we are identified in all this, how we are identified with Christ in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, knowing that we are identified with him, these things pertain to us as well. So now you look at his next statement here where he says, Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. Christ's resurrection showed his victory over death by rising again. Death cannot be master over him again. Now, when you look, you hear that statement, it sounds like a funny statement. Death no longer is master over him. When was it master over him? When did death have dominion or lordship over Jesus Christ? That's really what that word means. When he died in his death, by submitting himself to be crucified, he put himself under the penalty of sins. And what is the penalty for sin? Death. Doesn't mean that he sinned. Christ himself never sinned, but he paid the penalty for our sins. He took on the wrath that our sins incurred. He took that on himself and he died in our place. So when he died, he put himself under that authority of death, but he didn't stay there, right? We know that. How did he free himself from that dominion? By rising from the dead. Death could not keep him. Therefore, that's why it says that death is master over him no longer. It implies that it once was at that point in time, but it's no longer master over him. And it never will be again. Look at what it says in verse 10. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. You know the phrase that he uses here, he died to sin. We've seen that phrase before. When did we see that phrase before? Back up in verse 2, when Paul was talking about us. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Back then, we asked the question, when did we die to sin? Well, now we see how his argument here is coming full circle. When did we die to sin? When Christ died to sin. At that same time. Again, this is part of that identification that we have with him through the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You see, this is how we know that having died with him, Sin has no more power over us. We shall live with him for all eternity. But how did Christ die to sin? He was never sinful. How could he die to sin? Well, look over with me to the book of 2 Corinthians, the fifth chapter of 2 Corinthians. St. Corinthians chapter 5. We looked at this passage a few weeks ago. 
we were talking about reconciliation. But look down at what he says at the end of the chapter, uh, verse 21, very last verse. Paul says here, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What did he do? Christ took our sins to the cross, right? Not his own sins, but our sins, bearing them upon himself in order that we might receive the benefits of his death, that we might be free from both the penalty of that sin and the power of that sin, and even someday from the very presence of sin. That's the only way that we could be free of those sins by having them canceled out and we would be justified from them. Turn over to 1 Peter chapter 2, another passage. Second chapter of 1 Peter. Here Peter basically says the same thing. 1 Peter 2:24. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. Once again, this time with Peter, we see the same thing here that we're talking about in Romans chapter 6. We see the concept of dying with Christ in order to live a righteous life. This is sanctification, being set apart to live a new life that is in service to our Lord, living a life to God. Jesus Christ bore our sins. He paid our penalty. He broke the power of sin by becoming sin himself and then dying to sin. Now, how many times did Jesus have to die to take care of sins? What does it say? He died to sin once for all. Back in Romans 6. I didn't tell you to go back there. Back in Romans 6. Once. Just one time. He only had to die once to break the power of sin. And then he rose again to break the power of death. And that's why it said back in verse 9 that death is no longer master over him. He died once and he will never die again. There is no more penalty that will need to be paid once was enough. Once was all that it took. Another passage, book of Hebrews, 10th chapter of Hebrews. You can turn there if you want. 10th chapter of Hebrews, we see this uh, a few different places here. A few verses that express the same thing. Look down at verse 10 of Hebrews chapter 10. Writer of Hebrews says, by this, will, by this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And you see there the same thing. He only had to offer his body once for all, just the one time. We see it again down in verse, down in verse 12. Verse 11 says, every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Verse 12, but he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. Priests in the temple had to do what? They had to present offering after offering after offering for sin, right? Their work was never 
done. But Christ didn't have to do that. He offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, and then he sat down at the right hand of God. Why? Because his work was complete. A little further down, verse 14 says, For by one offering he, per- he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Says it again, how many offerings? One, one offering perfected for all time those who are sanctified. We are sanctified, we are perfected through his one sacrifice that takes away our sins. When he dealt with sin, he dealt with sin completely. It's a settled issue, never having to be revisited. Back in Romans 6, if you look at the very end of verse 10, it says, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Having been raised from the dead, his work with sin being completed, being finished, he lives to God. Now, this doesn't mean that he didn't live to God before. He is God. Of course, he lived to God before. But Paul is stating that now his relationship to sin has been severed. He no longer has to deal with it. He now lives free from that responsibility, and now his sole purpose is totally to God. Hebrews 9.28, we won't turn there this time, but Hebrews 9.28 tells us that when Christ comes again, he won't have to come in reference to sin in any way, since he has taken care of sins with his previous sacrifice. Hebrews 9.28 says, So Christ, also having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. Having died to sin, being totally free from any responsibility to provide a sacrifice again, his continuing work has nothing more to do with death. He lives set apart from that. So having set that picture in our minds, that brings us to verse 11, where we have the first imperative that Paul gives us really in the book of Romans. Imperatives are commands, instructions, things that we are now to do, our responsibility that Paul is giving us here. His entire letter so far has been theology, has been detailing out the plans and the working of God, but now we get some instruction thrown in here. Having seen that Christ's life is totally set apart to God, free from sin, and no longer under the master of death, this is how we should view our lives as well. He says, even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. He starts off with that little phrase, even so, which serves as the connection to what he's just said. We are to consider ourselves to be dead to sin. When Christ died, we died with him. And just as he is dead to the penalty, the power of sin, so are we. He has no association with that Neither do we. That's what Paul is saying here. Just like Christ is dead to sin, is no longer under its power, we are also dead to sin and no longer under its power. That is not merely a nice theory. That is a reality of the Christian life. This is not... um, This is something that in our minds we are to consider. We are to count ourselves or reckon ourselves in this way. And just like we said before, this affects how we live. This affects what we do every day, right? Why? 
Because we're to function in light of reality, aren't we? In light of what's true, taking in the facts of who we are and living in that context of who we are. Just like I mentioned before, sometimes I like to think about flying. Sometimes I like to daydream about being able to fly, right? You, every once in a while people ask those questions, if you could have any superpower, what would you have? I could fly. Wouldn't that be great to be able to do that? Jump up and start flying around. But that's not reality, is it? It's just not reality. After I take in the facts, I don't jump up in the air flapping my arms. I can't fly, and that affects my life. In the same way, that's what we're seeing here. The fact is that we are dead to sin, and we are alive to God. As believers in Jesus Christ, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, spiritually baptized into the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, this is absolutely 100% our reality now. This should affect the way that we live. It should affect what we do. It should affect how we respond to and how we look at sin. When we are tempted to sin, what do we do? We should stop and think. When faced with sin, any sin, any kind, even sins that we once held dear to us in unbelief, right? Everybody has their own, I think the Puritans used to call them bosom sins, things that are near and dear to them or that were at one time near and dear to them. But now we know that we can say, I don't have to do this. I am dead to sin and I am alive to God. We have been transformed to a new life. Whatever sins that we were involved in at one time, we are dead to those sins. You know what? We've become so much more informed, air quotes, informed about things today that we now have excuses for all kinds of sins. And even within the church, we become sensitive to these things. The, word, the world used to have drunks. Not anymore. You don't hear anybody talk about drunks anymore. You have alcoholics now. We don't have fornicators or adulterers. We have sex addicts. We all know, another air quote, that people are born being homosexuals these days, right? That's what the world teaches us. They say it's not a choice, and it's certainly not considered sin anymore. You can't even talk about it as sin anymore. We start to make excuses and say, well, these things, these are things that people can't help and they have no choice in them. When we make excuses for these things, we don't treat them as we should, as sin. They are sins. On one hand, when talking about unbelievers, there is some truth to the can't help themselves aspect of it because prior to our salvation, what were we? We were enslaved to sin. Call it addiction if you will, but the Bible calls it slavery. And that's what we're talking about here. It is what we're talking, it was what we were talking about back in Romans chapter 1. The unrighteous were given over to their sins. But as believers, what Paul is saying here is that this is not true for us anymore. The death that Christ died, that we have been made partakers of, has severed the power of these sins along with all others. Does that mean that we don't have temptations? Does that mean that we don't have cravings? No. In this body of flesh, there may be cravings, there may be temptations, lusts. 
I would even go so far as to say that there may be scientific validity someday. Some people might bring these out and they, they claim that there is today too. That some of these things may be physical, chemical, genetic. They may find a, a molecule or a protein here that explains some of these things. Um, I don't know if that's what's going on or not. I'm not smart enough to make that determination. But I'm saying that if that correlation can be made, even if they do find something that says this is why you do this, that doesn't change anything that Paul's talking about here. We know that we were all born with a sin nature. We know that corruption of our bodies is a part of what occurred at the falls, at the fall, and that has been passed down to us. I would say that even if they find something, it's just a matter of the corruption of these bodies. But even if it is, does that make a difference? What did we read in verse 6? In our body of sin, our flesh has been rendered inoperative. It has been done away with. That means that it's nullified and it no longer controls us. Some may say, well, I'm an alcoholic and I will be one till I die. Or I was born a homosexual and therefore I'm still one even though I'm saved. I'm just not practicing it anymore. But that's not what the Bible tells us. You may have been an alcoholic. You may have been a homosexual or throw in whatever sin might have applied to you. But what happened? You died with Christ. Those were things that were true of the old man under Adam. But now you are in Christ. You have been severed from that. And that is how you need to view and consider yourself from this point on. Turn over to 1 Corinthians. We're getting a, getting a workout with going to passages today. But 1 Corinthians chapter 6. As believers, we need to see ourselves as we are in Christ. In Christ, we have no excuses to sin. The power of sin has been severed. Look down at verse 9 of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And you see the list here, right? He lists a whole bunch of things here, but... but the umbrella of it all is the unrighteous. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. These are the ones who are not saved that he's talking about here. Those who do not stand in God's grace and exult in the hope of the glory of God, which we saw at the beginning of chapter 5. They are not justified. They live in the old man. They live under Adam. Does this mean that these kinds of people can't be saved? No, absolutely not. In fact, these are the types of people who are saved. The ones that need salvation, the ones that Christ died to redeem. But if they haven't believed, then this is what they still are. But what about those who have believed, have been saved? Look at verse 11. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. Praise God. Some of us were those things, but we aren't anymore. We've been washed clean. We've been sanctified. We've been justified. 
Those things used to characterize us, used to be true of us, but not anymore. Salvation brings about our transformation into a new life in Christ. Whatever sins you were involved in, they are dead to you, and you are dead to them. This is part of the separation, the sanctification that salvation brings into our life. You might have been involved in some of these sins before you were saved, but those sins, old sins, no longer define you. The world wants us to believe that once you have been shown to be addicted to something, then that addiction always defines you. But the world doesn't understand the freedom that comes from being justified by the blood of Jesus Christ. They are enslaved. They are defined by their sins, but the believer is not. The believer has died with Christ and has been raised with him to new life. You know, if someone comes up and says, like I mentioned before, well, we found the reason for X, Y, and Z. This addiction or that addiction or this sin or that sin, right? It's this protein or this DNA strand, whatever. How does that change what Paul is telling us here? Does it change it at all? We have a dangerous tendency to take things that we know are scientific facts and try to interpret the Word of God based on what the world tells us and try to uh, hold up science as our authority and try to measure God's Word by what science says. That's backwards. That is absolutely backwards. The Word of God doesn't have to measure up to any standard or any theory that man comes up with. God's Word is the standard. When we hear about some new theory, say they find that a small part of our brain controls lying. Oh, we found why you lie. We found why people lie. It's this little thing here, and some people have more of it than others. Now, what do we say? Well, there's a physiological reason for it. How can it be a sin? It can't be a sin. Now it must be a problem or a disease. Now how do I interpret Romans 6 or 1 Corinthians 6? I interpret it the exact same way. If they come up with some theory that contradicts the Word of God, I guarantee you it's not the Word of God that is an error. It's their error. It's not the Word that needs to be altered to twist or bend around the wisdom that the world can come up with. It's not God's Word that needs to be altered. So they find a reason for some sin. Fine, fine, so be it. Maybe there's something again in my DNA that causes me to do something or that gives me something that I struggle with. But that doesn't change what Paul is saying here. Our body of sin has been done away with. Doesn't mean it's gone. We still live in this same body, right? you, You close your eyes and pray and accept Christ as your Savior and you open your eyes. Are you any different? I look in the mirror and my hair's not back. I still have 50 extra pounds. I didn't suddenly lose 50 extra pounds around the middle. Nothing changed in that respect, right? It's still the same body that I live in. But God killed the old me, rendered the power that it had over me ineffective, and raised me up with Christ. All that had enslaved me no longer enslaves me. It's been killed off. And now, just like after Christ died, verse 10 told us that he lives to God, what do I do now? Consider myself to be alive to God in Christ Jesus. 
That's now my new life. So then we come to verse 12, and we get a therefore. More commands coming here. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. Now, wait a minute. We've just been talking about sin doesn't reign. Sin doesn't have authority. It doesn't have power any longer. We've been set free from it. So here, why does Paul command us not to let it reign? It has been rendered powerless. But when we sin, we willingly go running back to listen to it. To place ourselves under its old familiar authority. Three years ago, I left a job and we moved out here. And I started working for someone else, right? Completely different boss, completely different organization. When I left that job, they no longer had authority over me, right? The authority that they had over me was severed. How much sense would it make for my current employer to ask me to do something? My boss comes up to me and says, I need you to work on this project. And I say, well, you know, I would. But my old boss from the job I had three years ago, he has me working on something else. So I don't have time for that. That probably wouldn't go over very well, would it? For my new boss to, why are you listening to him? I don't work for that other boss anymore. There's no reason for me to go back to him and do something that he wants me to do, that he asks me to do. If he calls and I decide to help him out, I mean, maybe, maybe I get a text from him. Oh, it's my old boss. He gives me a text and he says, hey, can you help me with this? I can do it. I can maybe help him out, but I'm making that choice to do that. But when I consider the fact that he no longer has authority over me, and I know that fact governs my conduct, I can't sit here and say, well, I had to do it because my old boss from three years ago told me I had to do it. If I do what he asks, then I'm willingly going back to put myself under that old boss for whatever odd reason there may be. That's like what we do when we sin as believers. We answer the call of our old boss, our old authority. Be it a temptation or an old craving, but Paul here, Paul here talks about the lusts of our mortal body. But when we succumb to those lusts, it is always our decision to do it. It is never an obligation on our part, not any longer. It sounds very simple. And that's because it is very simple. We try to make it more complicated than it should be. We sit there and we think, well, well, what about this sin? Or what about that sin? Or why, why, what about this situation that I, find myself, that I find myself in over and over again? Do not let it rain. Do not obey it, whatever it is. Now, I say it's simple. It is simple. But don't confuse simple with easy. Simple and easy aren't the same thing. Even simple things are sometimes difficult, right? Opening a pickle jar, that's easy. I mean, oh, sorry. Opening a pickle jar, that's simple. Twist the lid. But it's not always easy to do, and we all know that, right? We all struggle with sin, and we all struggle in different ways. What I struggle with, you might not have any problem with, and vice versa, Right? I mean, I've, I've known people before, you know, somebody over here, it's like they, they were an alcoholic or a drunk in their old life or whatever you want to say, and now they don't drink at all, but boy, something gets set in front of them and, you know, the, the red alarms start coming up in their heads. On the other hand, me, 
I've never been one to drink. I look at that and I think, push it away. Never been a problem for me. And I don't say that to brag. I'm just saying people struggle with different things, right? People have different responses to things. But that doesn't change the concept of what Paul is saying here. Before we were saved, Romans 5 told us that death reigned and sin reigned in death. Now that we have been justified, we are not to go back to allowing it to reign. This is the whole point of his answering the question he presented up in verse 1. We should not continue in sin. We've gone from having a relationship with sin and death, a relationship that we wholeheartedly embraced, to having a relationship with Jesus Christ. And it's in that relationship that we are now to function. Therefore, we are to use our bodies, even these mortal bodies, in light of that new relationship. Look at verse 13. Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Here's the contrast. What we are not to do and what we are to do. It has to do with how we use these physical bodies in which we live. Right? These bodies, that's all we have, right? When it comes down to it. I, you know, I, I, at home, I have, you know, next to, the, next to the door, I have different shoes. I have two sets of shoes, two pairs of shoes. I have my working in the yard shoes, and then I have my going out in public shoes, right? I'm, I'm a guy. I don't have 20 different pairs of shoes, okay? I have basically two pairs of shoes. Some of you might have more than that. I just have the two. But I have a couple different shoes for different occasions. But with my body, this is it, right? I, I don't have a body for going out and sinning and another body that I put on for going out and serving the Lord, right? I've got one body. This is it. This is all its glory right here. You're, you're, you see it all right here. This is what I have to work with. Our bodies, these bodies of flesh, are our instruments, and they do what we make them do. They don't do things on their own. They do what we make them do. So if my sin is lying, if that's a propensity that I have, then I still must open my mouth and work my tongue and make those untrue words come out of it, right? I still do that myself. On the other hand, in order to read my Bible, I must use my hands to pick up my Bible, open it up, turn the pages. I probably have to you know, set my alarm at night and get up early, right? Open it up, look at the pages. I must make my eyes scan across the page and read it. I have to do that. I have to make myself do that. Our bodies do what we make them do. And that's what verse 13 is really getting across. To what do we present our bodies as instruments of? Instruments, weapons, as in warfare. How do we use our weapons, is really the word here, to benefit our side or the enemy's side? This is where the rubber meets the road. In light of all that Paul has been saying, we are dead to sin. We have newness of life. We are to consider ourselves dead to sin but alive to God. Now, what do we do with this knowledge? We live, we work, we are to accomplish the will of God as His children. This is practical sanctification. This is how we are to walk every day of our lives, not using our bodies for sin, but using them for righteousness. 
It's all about the conscious choices that we make every single day from the moment that we get up to the moment that we go to bed and then next day we do it all over again. That's the Christian walk. Having been freed from sin, we use these bodies to serve God. Last time we looked at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, talking about the good works that we now do after we have believed, after we have been saved, we now do what? We walk in the good works that He has prepared for us beforehand. That's why He saved us, to set us apart, to walk in this new life, living it out for Him, no longer for us, no longer for sin, but for Him. We are not glorified yet, so guess what? We do that in these bodies of flesh. Even if they may have been corrupted by sin, we are still to use these bodies to glorify God because now that He has saved us and sanctified us, we now have the freedom to do that. This is an ongoing process for us. This is the way in which we grow in our maturity. I've known people that used to engage in various things and they haven't done it in years, right? They haven't, oh, I used to do that before I was saved and it's been years since I've even thought about that. And then all of a sudden, out of the blue, some craving comes up, some lust just pops up out of nowhere. They remember those things from their old man. Do we forget these things? Probably not entirely. But as a part of the ongoing sanctification process, we work on training our bodies the other way. Make it get used to opening our Bibles, coming to church, serving, encouraging others, developing habits as we present our bodies as instruments of righteousness. As we continue to function in this way, we will continue to mature, to be sanctified. We don't skip ahead a lot. Well, getting close on time. We don't skip ahead a lot, but look over in chapter 8 of Romans real quick. We'll get here in due time, but look at what Paul says in verse 13. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. We haven't talked about the Holy Spirit much yet. That's coming when we get to chapter 8. But here he's contrasting those who don't have the Holy Spirit and those who do. Those in the flesh and those in the Spirit. Those living by the flesh who do not have the Holy Spirit, this is the unbeliever. But the believer is indwelt by the Spirit and therefore lives by the Spirit. This means that we are submitting our lives to the Holy Spirit. And in doing so, we will be putting to death the deeds of the body. This is ongoing practical sanctification. As we follow Christ and live for Him, the deeds of the body and the temptations and the lusts that we have will diminish over time. Paul says the same thing in the book of Galatians chapter 5 or 16, but I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Living as we should, presenting our members as instruments of righteousness, keeping ourselves away from sin puts the desire of the flesh in the background and brings us more and more into the character of Christ in all of our actions. Look at verse 14, chapter 6. We'll close here, we'll end here for today. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. The law gives commands, but it never provided enablement. Grace gives us the enablement to do the things that we are to do. 
Someone who is under law is still in their sins. Sin or are still given over to their sin. But someone under grace has been delivered from their sins. Delivered from the penalty and the power of their sins. God's grace provided this deliverance. Look back at verse 20, chapter 5 again. The law came in so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Under law, there is nothing but condemnation. Because as Paul has made clear several times already in our trip through Romans, the law never was meant as a means of salvation. The law pointed out men's sins, but could never take away sins could never provide righteousness that was required. Only God, coming in with His act of grace and providing the gift of His Son on the cross, could provide deliverance from sin. Now for the believer, it isn't sin but grace that reigns. And therefore we now have the freedom to live in righteousness and be freed from sin. This answers the question that Paul had proposed back up in verse 1. Are we to continue in sin because of grace? Absolutely not. We are dead to sin and alive to God, and therefore should be conducting ourselves in light of that truth, in light of who we are now. We no longer have to sin. We no longer have to submit ourselves to our old man who is identified with Adam. We are identified now with Jesus Christ and our life is to be lived for Him, serving Him, representing Him, living for Him in every possible way. What a glorious truth. We are free to serve our Lord. Freedom that we didn't have before. Before we were saved, we didn't want to serve Him, right? We saw all that back in those early chapters. We didn't even want to know God. We rejected Him. But even if we had wanted to, we couldn't do it. Why? Because we were enslaved to another master. We had no freedom to live our life for God. But now his death on the cross has made that possible for us. He died to sin once for all. He never has to die to sin again, which means that we, as those who are in him, never have to die to sin either or for our sins. Yes, we'll sin occasionally. And no, it's not all right that we do that, right? You always hesitate to say, yeah, the believer will sin because you're afraid that people will say, well, then I have an excuse. No, it's never all right when we sin. But through a life that is walking in the Spirit of God, we will mature and grow, and we will be able to diminish the influence that sin has and glorify God in our very lives. Let's close in a word of prayer this morning.